Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and it's a bright, sunny day here in suburban Philly, and I'm joined by my – I've got two colleagues now. Uh, Ryan went AWOL last week, uh, but he's back. Hey, Ryan. AWOL? I was on vacation, Mark. Uh, well, <laughs> I had to take the kids to Hershey Park. That's from my perspective. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I did bring the Hershey mic. Park, I was ready to do the, the podcast, but Hershey yeah. Park is full of kids, and there's no quiet place to be found. Has Hershey, I mean, I, you know, I took my kids there when I was your age, uh, probably, what is that, 20 years ago now. And I wonder if it's changed at all. Does it look like it's changed? Is it the same no. Hershey Park? Yeah, I remember it looked the same as when I went there as a kid. Oh, is that right? Nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah, you know, the chocolate factory, the chocolate world, all that stuff is pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. Well, the chocolate is, you know, obviously can't ch- touch that. I mean, that's the highlight. It's a classic. Yeah. Good. We got Chris Doridis. Chris, hey, how you doing? Doing well. How are you doing, Mark? You're not in the office today, or are you in the office? I am in the office. Okay. I just pulled the, pulled the blinds here. So. Oh, you pulled the blinds. Okay, very good. And uh, uh, Ryan, Chris uh, never goes AWOL on me. He, you know, vacation or not. Oh, no, once he did, right? Or, he did or, go no, AWOL. no, even he went on vacation. He was in Italy. He was in some kind of wine cellar or something doing the podcast. I was on the podcast, though. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> very good. And we've Made got a effort. guest. We've got a guest, Jared, Jared Bernstein. Jared, hi, how are you? Hi, hello, everybody. Yeah, and uh, for folks that don't know, Jared is on the uh, Council of Economic Advisors in the Biden administration. It's really a pleasure and honor to have you here. You get, he's, he uh, indicated that he'd be with us for a couple hours. You know, <laughs> no. Uh, I wish. Yeah, as you said, taxpayers would begin to question that. So we're, we're very glad for the time you can spend with us. So we really do appreciate that. My pleasure. Um, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we want to play the game, the statistics game. And I know, Jared, you're a, a fan of that game. You, you, As I recall, I don't know if I told Ryan and Chris this, I think we, early on in the podcast a year ago, there was a question about Chinese GDP. Oh, yeah. Quarter to yeah. quarter. So that was, where, that, that was where I realized the fix had to be in because somebody, somebody cited nominal <laughs> Okay, here's what happened. If I, I may have this wrong, but you guys will remember. Somebody yeah. cited quarterly nominal Chinese GDP growth, non-annualized or something, <laughs> and somebody else knew what it was. And at that point, I was like, oh, okay, so there, there's a fix. I get it. That's cool. It, but the, the reality was no fix. No fix. Uh, actually, last week, I blew these guys' minds. No, it was two weeks ago. Uh, right, Chris? What was Yes, that? the food price index. <clears throat> Oh yeah, the UN FAO food, food price, price index. Oh my nice. goodness! Yeah, yeah that, that, that was funny. There's a fix. No fix. Cr- no Chris fix. and Mark are in cahoots. Oh uh, yeah. See, Ryan. Ryan gets really upset if someone else wins the game because he's, <laughs> he's the maven. But uh, but Jared, uh, thanks for, for coming on. And uh, you know, before we kind of dive in, uh, I thought maybe we could just spend a few minutes. You can describe for the folks out there. What do you do for a living at the CEO? Yeah, no, it's a good question. <laughs> I mean, bro- broadly speaking, the Council of Economic Advisors provides uh, economic advice to the uh, president and the administration. More granularly, we really do four things. Uh, we write the economic report of the president every year, and that just came out, and we're so proud of it, and I hope people uh, will go through it. It's uh, just our senior economists and staff did such a great job. Um, secondly, uh, we make sure the president is up to speed on the data flow, which is uh, what you guys talk about all the time. Um, every, almost every day, there's a data report, and that goes into his book with our commentary. Um, the third thing is we we work on policy processes. So 
when we're talking about energy policy, um, uh, uh, counter-cyclical policy, really any of the policies that are in the economic sphere, um, members of the CEA are are working on those behind the scenes, and that can be a matter of of days, weeks, or months. And then finally, um, metaphorical fire drills. you know, you're sitting at home on a Sunday morning and the Turkish lira crashes and right. uh, the president wants to know what the heck was that about? And you have to you have to tell him. Yeah. And the one thing I found fascinating, I d- didn't know this uh, until recently, was that you actually see some of these economic statistics before the rest of us do. Right. To help you be able to give the commentary to the president when the when the uh, real time or even before uh, the rest of the morning. Yeah, typically the, uh, the the data reports go in the president's book the night before but not only do we not talk about them uh, when they come out the next day but in order to respect market reactions we don't talk about the reports until an hour after they're released ah. so um, that usually means 9 30 but here's a statistical question sometimes it means 10 15 what report would that be Industrial production. Uh, industrial production. Damn. Ding, you ding, are ding, good. ding. Uh, sometimes it means 11, I think. I'm right about that. Uh, that could be a slew of things. It could be business ISM. inventories, NEHB. Like, there's a lot of stuff that comes out. I was thinking JOLTS. Doesn't JOLTS come out of 10? Oh, JOLTS is a good one. Yep. Yeah. Doesn't that come out of 10? It does. Yeah. So we wouldn't talk about that until 11. Uh, interesting. Uh, so you wait one hour after the release before you're able to talk about. Not it. only do we wait, but that's actually a rule in the OMB in the Office of Management and Budget Registry. Oh, <laughs> that's true. not just arbitrary. That's that's actually a rule. A rule that was often broken by the prior administration. By the way, I was going to say even by the president, as I recall, the former president. Yeah, yeah, as I recall. Um, and so, how did you find your way to the CEA? I mean, I, I think we three ninety five. To the memorial. Oh, sorry. No, that's not true. Um, I've worked in um, I've worked in um, political economy for much of my career. Uh, I was at the Economic Policy Institute when I first came to Washington, working closely with Larry Michelle and mm-hmm. other folks there, Dean Baker, um, and uh, uh, still think the uh, the EPI now headed by Heidi Shareholtz is uh, one of our greatest think tanks. Um, uh, anyway, um, went over to the Center on Budget for a while, which is just uh, the premier uh, kind of uh, public finance uh, group, uh, uh, focusing more on low-income people. And like many um, political economists in Washington, come in and out of government. I worked for the Clinton administration, and then I was um, President Biden's chief economist when he was the vice president, and that was uh, you know a really interesting time. That was in uh, 2009 and 10. Uh, during the financial crisis where uh, President Bi- Vice President Biden was the implementer in chief of the Recovery Act. And so I spent a lot of time on that. And as someone with, with a very much of a Keynesian background, you know, that was that was very interesting to me. Yeah. So you've known the president for quite some time now. I have. It's, it's been it's been my privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you, so were you his economist, the chief economist for the for the vice president through both terms? I can't quite remember. No, no. Um, uh, uh, ben Harris took over, and now oh, Ben is a, uh, yep. is a uh, assistant secretary at Treasury, and uh, um, yep. Ben and I uh, enjoy uh, the fact that we have that in our past. And um, uh, there's a great um, uh, guy here named Mike Pyle, who is the chief economist for uh, Vice President Harris. So that is a, an active position. Right. And we, 
I, we've had touch points all along, uh, you know, going all the way back to EPI, I think during the financial crisis. Uh, you, and, you and I? I believe so. Uh-huh, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah and when you were at the center, uh, you commissioned uh, some work that, that's right. uh, that I did with Alan Blinder. That's the, right. It was a really that? great piece. Looking back at the uh, Recovery Act, I, that piece still gets cited all over the place. Does it? Um, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, you and your team have been uh, very helpful to us along the way and uh, uh, You're kind. very much appreciate uh, the insights. You know, I had to convince Alan, uh, Alan Blinder, the uh, vice chair of the Fed, and he, you know, of course, Princeton professor, this great, wonderful person, who, by the way, I should say, you know, there, you know, there are some people that when they, when you talk with them, you, you just like everything they say, you disagree with. Hmm. And there are some people, you know, no matter what they say, you go, oh man, I, I agree with that. And Alan Blinder is one of those guys, everything he says, I agree with. It's like, I, you know, it's amazing. You're second place, Jared, by the way, you're in second no, place. I, I, that's interesting. You should say that because um, I feel not only does Al, uh, do I agree with, um, uh, what Alan says with a, with an asterisk that I'll, I'll share with you in a second, but it's the way he says it. Yeah, exactly. He's so crystal clear. He's engaging. He's um, he's really funny. Also, I remember um, he stood up at a Fed conference that I was at once, and we were talking about messaging, how the Fed messages, and he said, first of all, nobody even knows what the Fed is. He said, I was talking about the Fed the other night. And I was talking about this thing, the Federal Reserve. And someone thought, thought I was talking about a national park, like a forest <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> right, exactly. That's an Alan Blinder. I mean, he has tons of lines. Alan Blinder has, I've stolen so many Alan Blinder phrases. One of the things he says is um, when he talks about policies that exacerbate inflation, that uh -huh. like, like, like um, tax cuts for rich people, he says that's um, unnecessary roughness to the income distribution. Right. No, because the, the, the primary distribution is already going in that direction. So why would you want to make the secondary distribution even more inequitable? The only reason there's an asterisk is we, we've disagreed on trade policy, but mm. um, it's always been very uh, collegial. And hopefully, um, you know, I know we, we've listened to each other, but I guess the, the truth is I've learned way more from Alan than I'll ever learn from me. Yeah, he's great. Uh, just because he's so knowledgeable. Yeah, I did have to convince him, though, to tell you to, to do that study. I remember I go, Alan, we just got to put a stake in the ground here for history. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. We a, we, that was a good summer uh, working on that paper with Alan Blander. Thank you for, for uh, commissioning that. That was uh, very helpful. Um, well, I, I, before we get to the game, uh, you know, I thought uh, it might be good to get a a sense from you of how th you think things are going. I mean, just to preface this, it feels like there's a lot of pessimism out there. I don't know how you're uh, reading things, but you know, you've got consumers that are down in the dumps. You look at the University of Michigan sentiment survey, and that's about as low as it's been since the financial crisis. Actually, it got a bit of a bump in the last read. Oh, did um, it? I yeah, it's actually no, about, about, but, but I mean, just partially, you know, yeah, it's, no, still, it's still, it's still, it's still low, but it, was, it got a, a, a pretty significant bump up, about 10%, I think, in the overall index, something in that name. Well, yeah, you're, 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 you're looking for that, those green shoots, I can see. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I don't want to yeah, overstate yeah. that um, at all. In fact, um, back when I worked for the, the green shoot reference, for those who don't get it, is back when I worked for the Obama administration, um, they were talking, people were talking about green shoots in terms of the recovery. 
And I was on a TV show once where people could call in. This is when I worked for the vice president. Uh And I remember someone saying, you guys must be smoking green shoots. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like an Alan Blinder line. Yeah. So anyway, my point (laughs) is that, you know, I'm just, I'm just correcting, you know, there there was that, but it's still, you're you're the the premise of your question is, is of course, correct. Well, you know, an economist generally, they're pretty low to say, okay, we're going to have a recession. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but, uh, you had Deutsche Bank last week or was it the week before? And then I think yesterday or the day before that, Fannie Mae, Doug Duncan, the chief economist over at Fannie, I, presumably it's from him, calling for recession in 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wait a second. Like, yeah. like back up, my friend. Yeah. Like, we are in an economy that is faced with some very considerable headwinds, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and boosted by some very considerable tailwinds, which we should also talk about. And, you know, I know that sometimes people say like, oh, the press is just focused on the negative. If, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and it's everything's inflation, inflation, inflation all the time. I'm not really bringing that argument to the table. I think people don't need the media to tell them that inflation is elevated. They see it themselves. Um, but I do think that the coverage uh, has often um, ignored uh, not just a set of tailwinds, um, but many fingerprints on those tailwinds of, uh, of uh, President Biden's policies. Mm. So the fact that we're sitting here with an unemployment rate that's a tick above where it was uh, before the pandemic, 3.6 versus 3.5, the fact that household balance sheets, if you look at net worth or if you look at uh, debt service obligations, are in pretty stellar shape. By the way, I realize that's very much talking about inequality. That's very much a macro or aggregate observation. And in fact, you yourselves have done really um, useful work on the disaggregation of those savings rates. Maybe maybe you'll talk about them. Uh, but um, I, based on based on the strength of the job market, the number of jobs, uh, the strength of, of household balance sheets, um, the uh, growth of total compensation, jobs and wages together, um, there are a lot of a lot of tailwinds uh, operating as well. And I think we we should be. Um, mindful of them and take a balanced view. That doesn't mean that you put your head in the sand. Um, and in fact, far from it. And maybe if we get a chance in our discussion, I can tell you all the things that we're trying to do to help um, ameliorate, uh, ease some of those price pressures that consumers are facing, because we take them very seriously. Every time the president talks about the economy, he talks about uh, these inflationary pressures. Uh, but uh, we, should be, we should be balanced in our headwind tailwind uh, analysis. Yeah, agreed. And I, I'm with you on that. Although my colleagues here, they're a little bit more pessimistic. We, we had uh, Michael Strain. You know, Michael, he's the uh, uh, runs research over at AEI. Many of his arguments end up being quite strained. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, listen carefully. But he's a good guy. He's a great th- guy. Thoughtful guy. And uh, of course, he's pretty pessimistic. And so are these two. I, yeah, I'll have to say, I mean, I think, uh, Ryan, you were, what were you saying? What was the probability of recession over the next couple of years? I can't remember. You 75% or something. Yeah, I think I said 70. And then 70, Mr. Dorides, yeah. who's kind of down the fairway, I call him down the fairway Dorides. <laughs> you know, he, he's even over 50%. Isn't that right? Over 55. Yeah. 55%. Yeah. So if, when that was within 18 months, right? 18 oh, within 18, yeah. with so. 18 months. Uh, I'm at one third, by the way, just to be on the right. You always have oh. to say, what's your time frame when you say your recession probably 12 to 18 months, I think. Uh-huh. Right. Kind uh-huh. of focused on. Beginning yeah. in, we're even more precise, you know, we won't tell you the exact day. I think yeah. a lot of this, look, again, I get it. We have the models. We should run the models. We, we, we run them all. Um, 
we pay attention to all of the probabilities that folks like you are, are putting out. I think we should be very aware, uh, and I'd be interested in other members of the panel talking about this, see if you agree that we are in a very unique and sui generis economy. Um, mm -hmm. And while we can plunk all we want into our models, um, it's a little tricky to deal with some things that are um, uh, so unusual. So for example, of course, the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic is still uh, um, uh, upon the land. Um, obviously uh, its impacts uh, on the economy have been diminished. Um, the Russian Ukraine, uh, Putin's unjust and unprovoked war is very much in the mix. Um, and we're entering this period with the tailwinds I talked about. So look, I've taken some of these regression probability models yeah. and I've then put in things like household balance sheets uh, or um, uh, um, I, I'm trying to like remember. Debt service, so you mean? Yeah, exactly, like yeah. the debt service. You yeah. know, you, yeah. it's, it, and, and the probabilities shift a lot. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, look, there's something to be said for taking a tried and true, you know, probit model with a yield curve and seeing what you get. Uh, but I think you have to I think you have to be um, mindful of how unusual the situation is. Too many analyses I've seen don't take account of uh, some very different factors in play right now. Yeah, I think I mean, you're making a, an important point uh, that more just to broaden that out, that the kind of the fundamentals of the economy feel like they're in very good shape. And when I say fundamentals, like kind of the balance sheet of the economy, and you, you've been talking about the household mm -hmm. balance sheet, debt service is a percent of income that households have to devote to servicing interest in, in principle. And that's pretty, I think it's at a record low or pretty close. Corporate balance sheets seem, feel like in pretty good shape. State and local uh, uh, government balance sheets feel like they're in, in no small part because of the American Rescue Plan and all of the money that went to state and local government. Yeah. So, Are you familiar with the statistic? I probably should have put this on my list for the game. Is the um, is the, uh, the private financial balance, which is uh, yeah. you know uh, a, a pretty a pretty important indicator of precisely this, basically uh, savings uh, versus uh, you know private gross private savings minus gross private investment. Um, that's that's uh, in, in good shape right now. So look, nobody's discounting the risks, uh, and in fact, as I said, the president talks about them every time he speaks. I think our job here at the White House is less to noodle around, you know, which probability is most believable. I mean, we do that here at the CEA because, you know, we, we want to make sure we're we're seeing what markets are thinking about. But more, what is the how how are households doing? How are they prepped for whatever comes their way? And what kind of quote, insurance policies are, need to be in place to help them if things, uh, uh, if things um, were to deteriorate. And um, furthermore, what can we do in the near term, medium term, and long term to help address some supply side constraints, whether we're talking about the ports, whether we're talking about competition policy, whether we're talking about the labor force, which I hope we get to talk about because I know you all think about that. And I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, here, here's something that you'll find interesting maybe. Uh, and I wonder if you do this. When the jobs report comes in, everybody goes and looks at the jobs number, payroll jobs number. That's not the first number I look at. I look at the LFPR. And then I look at the jobs number. Um, that's how important I think labor force participation is yeah. right now in terms of the, uh, of, um, of uh, again, kind of um, 
helping to meet uh, the strongest labor demand by some measures we've ever seen. Well, I, I want to come back to all of that. Uh, and before that, we're going to do the game. But I have one more question since we're on the, you know, this discussion around recession risks and get your take on the yield curve. So this has generated a lot of angst in different circles. The yield curve is the difference between long-term and short-term interest rates. Typically, long rates are higher than short rates, but every so often, short rates rise above long. The curve so-called inverts, and that's been a very prescient indicator of future recession. And if you go back to the beginning of April, the yield curve as measured by the two-year Treasury yield and 10-year inverted for a few days, which kind of made people go you know, on high alert here with regard to recession risk. So, Question to you, uh, in this group, I should say, has debated this on a number of podcasts, and we all have, I think, uh, I'm, a, 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 I'm not a proselytizer, but I am a believer in the yield curve. I think, I think Ryan is a denier. Uh, skeptic. 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 A skeptic. I keep forgetting that. And yield Chris, curve denier. I didn't know that there was such a category. Hey, hey, um, Chris, you can probably throw me in there. Chris goes in either direction. He's down the fairway, Chris. So I'm not sure exactly where he stands on the yield curve. But so, what, what's your what's your thoughts on that? How much hand wringing should we be doing over the the message or non message in, in the shape of the? Yield I curve? don't think we should ever try to reduce our understanding of where the economy is and where it's going by uh, one variable, or in this case, the delta between you know two variables at different maturities. Um, I think I, I, I try not to be the one hand, other hand economist that much, but in this case, I really am. Um, on the one hand, you've got all these people saying, hey, this time is different. And then on the other hand, like all the people who say this time is different are often wrong. Yeah. So, so I think it's, 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 uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it's also something that at the White House, we try to be pretty careful about talking about market variables in any sort of granular way. So I probably don't want to say a lot about that. Um, what I will say is that uh, it is, this is, again, and I'm not going to go through this because I already did. This is a very unique moment in, um, in uh, economic history uh, with lots of different uh, cross-cutting currents, um, some strong headwinds, some very strong tailwinds. So I'd certainly look at the yield curve as one variable. I wouldn't overweight it, and I might probably give it a little bit of underweight. I think I, I don't know if I'd quite join Ryan's club, but I'd uh, I, I'd I'd come to their meetings. See, there you go. All you got to do is come to the meetings. <laughs> Very good. Okay. All right. Let's play the game. Uh, Wait, and... uh, before we play the game. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> As we were talking you, about you all this. You do know, Jerry, this is my podcast. I'm just saying, <laughs> but go ahead. Go I don't ahead. think so. Well, that's why I'm going to ask you if, if you, that's what I'm going to ask you is, um, is, you know, this all led me to think about a joke that I was thinking about this morning. And I, I, I if you have a second, I could tell you. Yeah, fire away. Uh, yeah. So um, I think this, this is a, the, the captain of the captain of the ship is uh, sailing along and he sees a warship coming his way, okay. a very big and threatening warship. And he says to his first mate, um, get me my red shirt. And his first mate says, I will, Captain, but you know, we need to prepare for battle. Why your red shirt? And he says, because if in the course of battle I am stabbed and I start to bleed, I don't want the crew to see me bleeding. And that will inspire them to know their captain is you know, fighting for them. 
And he got him his red shirt and the story got around the crew and everyone was so uplifted by the captain's bravery that they fought and just put all their fight into it and they defeated the much bigger warship. And they were all very happy. And the next day they were sailing along and eight huge warships, each one bigger than the one from yesterday, came sailing around the corner. And the captain says to his first mate, get me my brown pants. Oh, no. Here we go. So I think the question is, are we talking about a red shirt economy or a brown pants economy? And I think we're talking, you know, that is that is the great. I think we're, you know, I think we're we're in I think we're in red shirt territory. Red shirt territory. We we can we can fight this battle. Hold it. Is that your joke or did you hear that joke? Um, That's a great joke. Yeah, thank you. I didn't make it up. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, that's that is that just summarizes things uh, beautifully. Oh, okay. Let's play the game. Uh, and of course, of course, the game. Let me just describe for uh, any listener who has not been listening to us, which would be you know why aren't you been listening to us? But the game is, we each uh, tell a statistic. Uh, the rest of us try to figure out what that statistic is through questions and some clues and deductive reasoning. The best statistic is one where it's not so easy that we all get it slam dunk, not so hard that, you know, forget about it. Uh, and uh, you get bonus, uh, you get a bonus uh, a star if it's apropos to what we're talking about uh, or uh, something that's relevant to the statistics. I will say this week was hard, I, I, for me at least, uh, because there were no statistics, I mean, or very few uh, statistics. No, there was a lot of housing. Yep, housing stars. A bit on housing, NHB. yeah, and I'm sure... I, maybe we're all going to mine the same statistics. I don't know, but uh, we'll, we'll see. But uh, you can think more expansively here because, you know, obviously uh, a little bit of a quiet week. But anyway, who would like to go first? Uh, maybe maybe uh, we won't let we won't have Jared go first uh, no. just so he can get into the flow. What do you think? Should we go? What do you think, Ryan? Should you go? Let Chris or, go first. Let Chris go first. It was like a housing. It's going to be housing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Jared, uh, uh, Chris is a Hauser. He's a oh, good. Mae, former oh. Fannie Mae modeler. So, oh, I think yeah. that's such a great, uh, such a crucial area of policy right now. So we'll come I back hope, to that. Yeah, yeah, let's do. We'll definitely come back to that. All right, Chris, fire away. All right. All right. Better be good. No. St- it, well, <laughs> you got Go a track record away. to maintain here. I'm glad Ryan's back. So um, mm-hmm. 116.8441. Oh my! God. Okay, well, how many decimals did you just go out there? <laughs> Wait, it's reported by the source. But one sixteen point eight four four. Is it a housing statistic? It is not a housing statistic. Ah, you threw us for a loop. Yeah. Is it, a, is it an is it an index number? It is an index. Yes. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> anything related to prices? Well, uh, in uh, in a uh, very. Broad sense, yes. In a broad sense, uh, but not house prices. Uh, nope. uh, it came out this week. Came out this week. Yes, it did. What this year? What this may be this week? Oh well, it came out on the Friday of last last week, Friday. So, yeah, it was after our podcast. So, oh, <laughs> uh, what could that be, Ryan? You should know these. You should know that. Oh, well, you were at Hershey Park. I was in Hershey Park somewhere else. Yeah. Would Wait, you like is this industrial production? Industrial, nope. Industrial production came out on Friday. No. Would you like Can a you hint? Can you give us a hint? Can you give us yeah. a hint? Like, a, what's the genre? I'm, I'm glad you asked for it. Wait, hold on. Uh, before oh, you give us a oh. hint, this is a form of a hint. 
if it's an index, it's based in some year in 100. What year is it? So in other words, what it's 16% above something that was 100 when? Oh, gosh. Oh, I, good question. I, you don't know. That's okay. Look, Sorry. I'll have to look it give, up. Give us your... <laughs> Uh, so can you give us a, like a, like yeah. a, a broad hint? I'll okay. give you the hint. Okay. Is that a musical hint? I can't hear that. What, what is that? Did you hear it? No. <laughs> oh, let me go back. Are you oh. name, name this tune now? Name this tune. It's such a great hint. You are getting very creative. <laughs> I'm getting sophisticated here. Over okay. the top creative here. Is that Hurdle? Dollar. Oh, something about the dollar, the strength yes. of the dollar, the that's, trade that's weighted the, dollar. That's how the much trade the dollar index. Oh, the trade nominal, weighted is it, dollar. Is it the nominal broad trade weighted dollar? It is the nominal Very broad. Good. Yeah, that's a good one. Dollar index. That is not a good one, Jared. I don't know what the heck. That's you're a great about. one. That is it's a great one. one. The dollar is really important right now. But one sixteen point one. Thank you, Jared. You can come on anytime. You could have said like one oh eight and. <laughs> 132 you know like the euro and the pound but you got to give us the the innocuous fed index okay well anyway what's it saying what's what's the deal uh, on the on the dollar well it's up it's it's showing that the dollar has been strengthening recently um the euro it, the dollar is up 10 percent against the euro and um no i'm sorry 10 percent against the yen and five percent against the euro uh so far this year so strengthening dollar for in the context of inflation, it's good for consumers, right? Uh, foreign goods are, are cheaper, right? That helps to reduce some of the inflationary effects. Not great for exporters or for multinational uh, corporations that are uh, converting their, uh, their foreign uh, exchange back to dollars. But um, so there could be some knock-on consequences here. We could get a flood of imports as a consequence. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least for the short term, this is benefit uh, a benefit for uh, consumers in terms of containing some of the inflationary pressure i actually got a question from a client uh it was yesterday about the dollar we in our forecast we have the dollar coming down and oh. uh the the logic being that there's a flight to quality or uh, you know a um uh, uh, given all the risks, the Russian invasion and pandemic, there's been a flight to quality into U.S. assets in the dollar, and that will come out over time. When I say down, not down right away, but down over the next year or two. And then the other is, uh, you know, of course, the Fed's on high alert, and right. that's really juiced up uh, the flows of capital, near-term capital into the U.S., and that'll abate as the rest of the world catches up. Central banks like the ECB and BOE start to catch up. I don't know. What do you think of that, that was a pretty controversial forecast. I don't know uh, what you think about. I that. would have, I personally, I would take, take the, uh, I would probably take the other side of that forecast, but the dollar is one of the hardest variables to forecast. Um, and I heard that from Maury Obstfeld and he, he, he knows a lot about that sort of thing. So um, I, I, uh, um, I think that, you know, I would predict strengthen a strengthening dollar based on, uh, on, on Fed policy and relative growth rates. Uh, I'm sure you all, maybe one of you are going to use this. I'm sure you all saw the um, IMF forecast that came out uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, and they were, they were showing, you know, decelerated global growth, but still uh, stronger here than, uh, than in other countries that are more exposed to the, to the conflict. Yeah, in our modeling, the other thing that matters in the intermediate term, not next month or even in a year, but over the next several years, is the trade deficit, which has gapped out quite a bit because the U.S. economy has been so much stronger 
than the rest of the world. So, you know, we have been importing a lot of product uh, and exports have been soft. So that also starts to weigh on the dollar. I think I was the first one who got that. I just want to kind of record that. Just yeah, you're, you're right. It's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if that that's cowbell material. No, cowbell, you get cowbell. a cowbell if you, you know, it's a... Uh, I think so. Come on. Is it cowbell? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, I got to get it. I, I moved the location of them. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Go get that cowbell. All right. Jared, you're up. What's your statistic? Oh, cool. Okay. Well, I brought I brought two okay. um, because uh, this sounded fun to me. Um, one is, uh, I think, pretty easy. And the other, I think, is pretty hard. And I'll give you a lot of great hints on it. And I'll bet you get it. Uh, the right. first one is 1%. The, and it came. The insured unemployment rate. Exactly. Wow. Now that <laughs> is a, a cow. That, Jared, that's wow. the cowbell. That is the cowbell. No, that, no, that's uh, exactly right. And it's the, it's the lowest insured unemployment rate since uh, 1970. And just for, for listeners to understand, how are we talking about an unemployment rate that isn't 3.6%, uh, which is the one you have in your head from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the big jobs day? Um, this is the, uh, a rate that comes out every Thursday when the Bureau releases uh, the unemployment insurance claims data, and it's the uh, percent, it's it's continuing claims over covered employment. So it's kind of a different statistic, but it, it moves very much with the uh, with the overall uh, unemployment rate. And I just brought it over because I thought it was a very topical yeah. given how tight the job market is. That's good. a good hey, one. In, in that regard, oh, Chris, did you want to say something? I'm sorry. I just said that's a good one. That is a good one. Yeah. Can I ask you, I, I, this is a question I wanted to ask you because I'm confused. Uh, where do you think we are relative to full employment? Are we at, now you look at that 1% insured unemployment rate, you say that's gotta be full employment, but are we at full employment or how do you think about that? The way I think about that right now is in a very dynamic sense, which is to say that I don't think you can evaluate whether we're at full employment without thinking about uh, the labor force and labor supply. Um, remember, as we all know, payroll employment is still down 1.6 million from its yeah. pre-pandemic peak, much less its pre-pandemic trend. Uh, so you would look at that and think there's room to grow. At the same time, um, the labor demand indicator that all the cool kids are looking at these days, which is payroll employment plus openings, right? that's the demand side, payroll employment plus openings. So payroll employment is, you know, 160 million or whatever it is, and openings are another 11 million on top of that, relative to the labor force, that gap there would suggest you know, a very hot labor market, and some people would call that full employment. I wouldn't because I think that, the, 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 that, that that ignores one of the most important, and in my view, one of the more hopeful trends in the current economy, which is the improvement in labor supply. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, there is an identifiable trend. It's not a one-month thing. And in fact, uh, too few people recognize the fact that labor uh, force growth is actually stronger in this recovery than in, uh, than in any of the past five recoveries up to this point. Now, it was coming from a lower trough, of course, so there's a bounce back in there. Uh, but uh, especially if you look at um, prime age workers, their labor force participation rate is, uh, is only 50 basis points below its prior peak. And so I wouldn't call us at full employment unless I'm willing to assume that LFBR is stuck uh, that that participation is stuck, and I don't think I don't think it is. It's moving. It's on the move. Um, a, a broader point, and then I'll stop, is that I do think that economists have a lot of thinking to do right now, more broadly about what the capacity variables 
are right now. What 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 level is U star, which is uh, GDP full capacity? U star, which is the full employment unemployment rate. R star, the neutral interest rate. All of those, I think, are perhaps undergoing structural shifts, and they're hard. They're hard to t target in the best of times. I think they're particularly hard now. Yeah, my uh, sense is that there's still room to grow, go here because we're creating 500,000 plus jobs per month. You, you know, if we were at full employment, there's like zero probability we could be generating over a half a million jobs each and every month. That's just not consistent. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way to frame it. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I, I know you mentioned the cool kids statistic with the unfilled jobs. You know, as a as a, an employer who posts jobs, once you post a job, pretty unusual if you would take down the posting, it's going to stay there. So I'm not sure. Mm, you that's know, an interesting what point. We're actually measuring there, you know, because uh, you know we the economy reopened back a year ago, and everyone posted a job at the same time because well we were reopening, and they just it, I don't know. That's that a really people, good point. People that's take really, that down. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so, going to have to noodle over that. It's a really yeah. good point. Um, well, you, you said you had a second statistic. I do have a second statistic, and um, the, 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 it's it's 17, um, and uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of hints to help you get it. Now, you might think this is very obscure. The reason I think it's okay to bring to the table is because the president of the United States uh, talked about it last week Whoa. On, on Friday, okay. which is a hint. 17. Uh, did it come out on Friday? It did. Was this oh. the... Empire State Manufacturing Survey? Nope. Well, I know the Philly Fed was at 17.6, but that was this one. No, nope, this is just a good old 17, a um, an integer. An integer, 17 on the nose. And uh, I can give you more hints. Okay. Um, this wasn't, um, this number wasn't in the report, but um, if you count up uh, the number of, well, that's, that's if I'm going to give it away if I give start to say that. Um, yeah. The CEA tweeted about this, hmm. so this is not that obscure. We, we tweeted about this number. Um, okay, I'm gonna give you a big hint just to move the thing along yeah, here. Right. Um, on Friday, the Bureau released the state and local unemployment report. Oh, this is a good and one. 17 states have unemployment yes. below 4%? Or 17 states have the lowest unemployment on Ever. record going back to 1976. Wow. Wow. That is cool. That is interesting. Badass that statistic, statistic, am I right? Yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's a good one. <laughs> we should we should know that. We should be tracking that. Yeah. That's a really cool one. Yeah. President yeah. mentioned it in a statement. Uh, we tweeted on it. Where the 17 states are they the like the Mountain West and South where growth has been strong or a lot of them are, I remember yeah. Utah, Nebraska was in yeah. there, Alabama, Georgia, right. I think. Uh, yeah. But you go if you just go to the CEA Twitter thread, you'll see all the yeah, we, yeah, we, we list them all out. That is actually a really that's a cool one. That's a really mm -hmm. good one. Yeah. In fact, we should create that measure and track that over time. That would be really good to look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Chris, you're up. All right. Oh, Ryan. Sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, Ryan, you're up. All right, minus 68%. Oh, geez. Uh, my, and is, is it, it may sound bad, but I'll, yeah. I'll weave it back into Jared's point that the consumer is in good shape. So there's your hint. It's sort of consumer. Related. Is that is that the decline in debt payments over the last? No. Is that on the, mm -hmm. on the right track? Uh, mm, no? no. Okay. No. Uh, uh, Give us a hint. Came out right. this week. Yeah. It came out this week. It's year over year. 
and it's a weekly number. Hmm. It's if not for, it's not from UI claims, is it? It is not from UI claims. Is it a housing related one? It is housing related. Uh -huh. Oh, okay. Is oh, that the so, decline in inventories over the past year? No, that is, would be too big. Nope. That's that would be yeah, that would be enormous. That'd be too much. Too inventories big. are actually set to start to resume NBA, rising this summer. MBA series. Oh, is it NBA? the NBA? Refis. Oh, refis? Oh, Over the past year, yeah. they're down 68%. Oh, down. Oh, so first of all, you should say negative 68%. Did I say down? He did. He did. No, he oh, he did okay. say down. Sorry. I'll I say negative. All right. But no, we no, are a good. little dyslexic on this podcast. We, we do have a bad track record. On, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, okay. That's really interesting. Explain so, it, Ryan. I was just a reflection of the rise of both the 15-year fixed mortgage rate and the 30-year fixed mortgage rate. So both of them have you know important implications for refis. Uh, so- you know, I think Chris brought up, Chris and I were on a call and he mentioned that, you know, he saw a stat that 90% of mortgages uh, outstanding have a rate less than 5%. So we're kind of, yeah. you know, mortgage rates are above that. So now the incentive yeah. to refi is low, but the impact on spending is going to be really small because cash out refinancing has been pretty low over the last several years. So it's not a big source of spending okay, for I, or so, I, I yeah. actually know this. Guess how, here's a good statistic uh, or a question. How much cash did consumers, households take out of their homes vis-a-vis -vis cash out refi in calendar year 2021? Roughly. Well, I know in the first quarter of this year it was 50 billion. Okay, well that gives you that gets you pretty so, close. 275 billion. Yeah, that's, dollars yeah. last year. Yeah, in cash out <clears throat> refi. Ah, that's a good one. And you're saying it, you know, but you still can get cash out refi. Mm -hmm. at high rates because people because there's all this equity homeowners equity that people want to pull out and they may might be cost effective given interest rates rising and card rates on credit cards and other yep. so vehicles yeah get 2.6 trillion dollars in excess savings like yeah maybe that's not the first place people yeah. go to yeah, pull cash out point. unless you i have a question about you. this um our friend jim parrot was talking to me about this phenomenon jim's a uh uh, friend he's been of Mark, on. He's been on the podcast. A great, great housing yeah. uh, expert, and um, he was talking about a bunch of businesses. You know, these shops that sort of exist to do refis. And when we're thinking about the impacts of a, uh, how sharply the mortgage rate has been climbing, I would imagine this has implications for that side of the housing finance oh. business. Is that oh, yeah? They're you laying guys off for sure. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's mm -hmm. you know that's one place where there are layoffs. Yeah, of that hundred, how many how many UI claims last last month? Uh, one hundred eighty four thousand last week. Yeah, I think a fair share probably would be in that in that, in that industry. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, that's a good one. I, I I I've got one for you. I don't know. I don't know if this is easy or hard. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I'll just throw it out. Seventeen hundred dollars. Seventeen hundred. I saw this. I saw this. Yeah, um, I bet you did. Yeah. Is this a, a tax related? Not tax related. Nope. Um, inflation. Well, that would be good though, because the tax season's wrapping tax up. Tax season, so. yeah. Mm -hmm. The the, the uh, tax refunds are, yeah. That, but that's not this. It's like an average income for some household. Nope. Oh, okay. Give us a hint. It's housing yeah. related. Oh. Housing related. It's it's not a statistic that you we get from a release. It's oh, just, um, a Redfin. Right, increase in the payments on the asking. Well, you're kind of in prices. the ballpark. Yeah, you're kind of in the ballpark. Okay, uh, it's probably too hard. It turns out it's too hard. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll just lay it out there. That's the monthly payment 
uh, on a home, oh. a median priced home with a 20, 20% down payment at a 5.11 interest rate, which is where Freddie Mac says the 30 year fixed rate was last week. So I see. say in, in the median price home, you know, it's hard for people, it's hard for me to get my mind around is now $390,000. So half of homes that transact are above that price, half below. So if you buy the median priced home 390, put 20% down, of course, many people might not do that, but let's just go with it to make it easy. And you attach a 5.11% interest rate. It's $1,700. Now, here's the other, here's another question. What was the monthly payment on the same median priced home at the prevailing interest rate a year ago? One year. 1200 Just trying that out. Actually, a little out. less. A little less than 1200 That's a 500 buck per month increase in the <laughs> monthly payment. That gives you a sense of, you know, this is going to do some damage, you know, in, in terms of housing activity. We're going to see some real slowing in. in but that's not necessarily a bad thing. The housing market was pretty unhealthy. So actually some cooling in the housing market would be a good sign. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, home sales, though, haven't been inordinately high because of supply constraints, but yeah, mm -hmm. house price growth. Yeah, and so we'll see some yeah, it's cool down. moderation in house price growth, which is, I think that's a good segue to the next part of the conversation around inflation, Jared. And uh, I think, you know, obviously this is top of mind for uh, most Americans. Uh, you know, I think it probably goes back to why consumers are uh, pretty down on the uh, on things because they're, you know, obviously paying a lot more at the gas pump and when they go, go shopping. And I, I, there's a lot to talk about here, but I guess my first question, because I, I do want to talk about the outlook for inflation, but my first question to get there is why? What's going on here? Why is inflation as high as it is? And I, I know there's probably a lot of reasons, but, you know, how do you think about this? Why 8.5% CPI inflation as of March of this year? Well, I think the explanation is most simply framed as the intersection, or if you want to call it the collision between very strong demand and constrained supply. Uh, I think the first order explanation has to include both of those. Um, I know there are those who want to focus just on the demand side and those who want to focus just on the supply side. I, I think you have to focus on both um, and uh, I think one of the ways in which you can understand why that calculation or why that framing, that simple equation is, um, is, is uh, germane is to think about where we see elevated inflation. And the answer is uh, pretty much in every advanced economy. Um, I saw that the uh, inflation rate March over March for the EU recently posted at 7.5%, historical record. Of course, uh, the uh, uh, Putin's unprovoked war is, is, is in that mix. Um, they're more exposed to some of the commodity issues, particularly energy. Uh, but I think if you start looking around the, the world and, and, and look at the uh, comparisons uh, between countries, uh, you'll see that, um, you know, uh, every country is experiencing highly elevated inflation, advanced economy. Um, I mean, even Japan has ticked up recently, yeah. but that's, you know, in the one and two range. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, what did, what are all of these countries experience? Well, they, you know, yes, they all had some fiscal and monetary policy, but that was different everywhere. Um, they all experienced the pandemic. And uh, this is a chapter in the economic court of the president. The uh, pandemic is absolutely fundamental in understanding the current inflation.
So there's been a lot of criticism. This goes back to the American Rescue Plan, the seminal legislation passed March of last year, uh, close to $2 trillion uh, in government support to help the economy navigate through the pandemic. And there's been a lot of criticism of that. You know, clearly that's that 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 American Rescue Plan, and we've done a lot of work in this area, has been key to getting the economy where it is today in terms of jobs, in terms of low unemployment, and, you know, making sure that Americans, you know, were, were able to financially navigate through without without uh, losing their jobs. But there's the criticism here is that it, you know, this this has juiced up demand uh, and that this is uh, key to, you know, what's going on, why inflation is as high as it is. So I'm just curious how you think about that. Well, again, I think here we have to be very even-handed and 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 understand that uh, two things. One, um, of course, there's been criticism, and we were getting into this earlier. You know, uh, all the uh, focus on inflation. There's also been a lot of praise, uh, and in fact, if you look at some of the publications coming out of this shop called Moody's.com, uh, <laughs> you'll see some uh, very fulsome analysis of how important the rescue plan was. And you're not alone. Uh, lots of others have found that as well. Um, I think number, and the second point is that, you know, we talk about demand. What does that word mean? I mean, to the average person, if I went home and talked to my wife about demand, she'd be like, well, what are you talking about? Let's be very clear here. We're talking about jobs. Hmm. We're talking about an unemployment rate that is back to where it was pre-pandemic, pulling forward a recovery by years relative to what forecasters thought would be the case. We had lower child poverty in 2021 than we did in 2020 and lower in 2020 than I believe in 2019. We somehow managed to have lower child poverty. It wasn't magic. It was because of the rescue plan in 21, that is, and the impact it had on family incomes. We're coming out of this downturn with fewer evictions than anyone expected, with stronger balance sheets, than anyone expected with very little scarring in terms of uh, lasting economic damages on uh, individuals and households. That's what that word demand means. So yes, we got more heat uh, on the price side, but we got more growth and um, a lot more very meaningful benefits for the well-being of American households. So here we are, eight and a half percent CPI inflation year over year through March. Obviously, just you know, out of bounds and incredibly painful. Uh, uh, Ryan's actually done a lot of good work calculating the uh, increase in monthly uh, costs for the typical American household. I think we're up to what three hundred and fifty bucks more a month, Ryan, mm -hmm. something like that, uh, to cover the higher inflation. So, and when I think about you know what can be done to address this, I kind of think of three buckets, and maybe we can just. One take one at a time. The first is around um, uh, energy prices. Obviously, you know the Russian invasion and the spike in, in oil and gasoline, diesel prices is you know front and center. So, and I know we've been doing you've been doing a lot of things in this area, and we should talk about it. The second is global supply chains, and this goes back to the pandemic and you know the disruptions to uh, particularly Asia, China, where a lot of the chains begin, and that's been highly disruptive. One of the reasons why vehicle prices and Furniture prices and consumer electronic prices have gone uh, gone uh, skyward. Um, and the third bucket is, I, I would say, housing. Uh, and I want to talk about this because you know rent growth is extraordinary. I mean, double digit, and this is a problem for every American because you got to live somewhere. And 
you know, what are we going to do about this? So I'll leave it up to you. Where do you want to start? I mean, there's, I know you're working on all these things. and We're working on all those things yeah. and I could take the rest of our time and take you through our agenda. And I don't want to do that uh, mm -hmm. only because um, I want to hear what the group has to say. I would say that I've never been part of an administration. And, you know, as I said earlier, I've been in this political economy world for many decades. I've never been part of an administration that is doing more to try to help on the economy supply side as this one. Um, I mentioned my Keynesian bona fides earlier in the conversation. If you've looked at my work um, up to now, it focuses largely on this idea that um, what came to be called secular stagnation, the idea that demand in the macroeconomy, uh, particularly here, has been persistently too weak and that this has had disproportionate effects on uh, vulnerable households, on communities of color, and that we have to do things to strengthen demand. Uh, I, I didn't think as much about the supply side because we didn't have these kinds of problems. But here we spend uh, every working day at the behest of President Biden trying to think of what we can do to help on the supply side. On energy prices, of course, uh, we've presided over some of the largest re releases from the strategic uh, uh, petroleum reserves. Um, that feeds quite directly into oil prices and gas prices. We've seen some of that. Um, there's a much broader agenda over the longer term, including a path to uh, renewable energy uh, and uh, uh, much more climate-friendly production. On the global supply chains, we've done more than I ever could have imagined. And we have a supply-side task force run by uh, really a really dedicated group of people here, helping the ports move to a 24 and seven schedule. Mark, you and I have talked about economics for decades. I don't think we ever talked about dwell time, yeah. containers and port. We never use those two words. Hmm. Every day I'm looking at dwell times and dwell times are down by 50%. We're, we're that, by the way, I should say dwell times are the, is the amount, not like everybody knows what they are. The, the, the length of time that a container spends in a port. So that's a, a snarl in the global supply chain. We're helping to improve trucking. We're having real uh, success there in terms of increasing people's um, uh, kind of uh, working through backlogs there, it's, uh, CDL policies. On housing, I, look, again, I, I, I think the best thing to do would be to look at our, our most recent budget, which is on, um, on the website of the omb.gov. We have deep programs, and Mark, I know you know all about these. I think you've helped us think through some of them. Uh, uh, in, increases uh, Policies to increase affordable housing supply, which is so essential, increasing the housing choice voucher program, first-generation home buyer support. Uh, one of the really interesting ideas is some, some ideas to help push back on um, uh, exclusionary zoning. And here I just want to stop, uh, end, end on one point because people don't know enough about this. We're actually doing something now, historical, in the field. This is happening to help diminish exclusionary zoning. It's through the bipartisan infrastructure law, of all things. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the idea is that if uh, you want the federal government to support a project in your town or city uh, from the infrastructure law, which is legislated, it's moving out into the field, um, it's almost a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment over 10 years. And you can show how that um, uh, project helps um, uh, uh, push back on exclusionary zoning, how that project helps 
increase housing and density around areas of transportation hubs, for example, that is an added advantage to you in your bid to get that, uh, to get that help. And it's working. We have examples of how, how that's uh, being uh, taken up by various cities and so. So I thought that's a very creative idea and we could talk much longer about all of those ideas, but you know, we're tackling all that stuff as best we can. You make a good point. I mean, uh, generally policies focused on the demand side uh, because that's what you can influence quickly in the near term. And you know, it's clearer and clear that's where the Fed's focus is entirely focused. But actually trying to uh, influence the supply side of the economy, which obviously is, would take in all the damage here from the pandemic. It's a supply side shock, the Russian invasion, that's a supply side shock. So you have to work on trying to uh, uh, improve what's going on in the supply side, supply side of the economy. That's not easy. That's just not generally where economists and policymakers have put their thought, their thought. But uh, you know, obviously, it makes it a lot more difficult. Just a couple things on all the policies you mentioned. You know, on back on energy. Just curious how you would respond to the criticism around the, uh, you know, pipe uh, restrictions on pipelines and permitting. You know, you, I hear this a lot from uh, clients that. Uh, you know, the administration has been, you know, very down on fossil fuels, you know, focused on climate. You know, what's the trade-offs there? And how do, you, how do you think about that? I think that we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to help people get through this period of, um, of uh, elevated uh, oil prices. Um, and we can't uh, say to them, um, Hey, everybody, hold tight. We're making a transition. I'm doing air quotes, which you can't see on the radio, yeah. uh, on the podcast. Uh, you know, transition is, is economies for uh, somebody's about to get whacked. Um, and, uh, and so we're very mindful of um, helping households uh, get through this period of elevated energy prices as best we can while plotting a course towards robust, renewable uh, production. Um, and that means American market share for battery production, for solar power, for wind, uh, make it here, buy it here, build it here. Now, th these are all parts of the Biden agenda. Um, but you can't get there unless you take the people with you. In terms of the um, uh, friendliness, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of, of uh, open permits that companies already have. The president increased some just the other day, last Friday. Uh, so I, 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 you know, that criticism doesn't, doesn't really land with me. I think if you ask yourself if these companies are making some real money right now, the answer is, of course, they are. I think probably a more important question, one which big minds like the folks here uh, on, on your side should take up is, are we seeing the kind of elasticity of response in terms of supply production, in terms of rigs in the field uh, to these elevated prices. Uh, by some measures, at least initially we weren't, maybe more lately we've seen a little bit more of that, uh, but I, I think that's uh, an important question in this space. Yeah, the one thing I've noticed, I was just looking at the rig counts, which is you know obviously a good proxy for uh, production of oil and gas and in the US in the fracking fields. And it, you know if you look at the year over year growth in the number of rigs, it's, it's just, incredibly sta steady, you know, since oil prices got above 70 bucks a barrel headed north, because 70 is kind of, by my calculation, break even, you know, for the typical, you know, rig out there operating. But ever since we got above 70, it's been, you know, it incredibly stable year over year growth. It's almost like this is the physical limit on what the industry can actually do 
in terms of increasing production. And to get it to go above that, or you know, is just not possible given the physical constraints that they you know they operate under. So it's almost it's it's still the rig counts are still a bit below where they were pre-pandemic, but they're getting back pretty fast. So mm -hmm. this argument that there's these constraints on the ability of these companies to to pr increase production just doesn't doesn't square with the data, at least not from what I can tell. But uh, but anyway. yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Hey, on back on housing, you didn't mention, or maybe you didn't, I missed it. You know, all the various tax credits that are available. Mm -hmm. Like LIHTC, low income housing tax credit, uh, you know, there's been new market tax credits. I mean, I, I bring that up because I think that could have more of an impact sooner in terms of lifting supply. And, you know, it also might get some bipartisan support because, you know, obviously, you know, it's on the tax side and Republicans might be more interested in that. I just need yeah, to. Yeah, no, that's an important point. Again, um, I think that there are those probably, was it, was it Chris or Ryan, who come from a housing background, uh, Chris. who Chris could get very excited when we start talking about this and others whose eyes glaze over. So I wanted to be respectful to the latter group. Uh, but yes, I mean, um, again, we have a very nice fact sheet uh, at OMB.gov um, from our most recent budget, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. The budget proposes 50 billion in mandatory funding um, uh, and additional um, uh, low-income housing tax credits, this LIHTC, uh, to help uh, increase um, housing supply to help stabilize housing prices over over the longer term. There's money in there for uh, funding state and local housing finance agencies that provide uh, grants and other financing tools to uh, to agencies. Uh, Mark, there's something that you talked about, which is um, uh, helping to finance uh, community development financial institutions, which fund new construction and rehabilitation. Um, there's a rural component, two billion for rural housing loan and grant program. And all of this, all of this alphabet soup is designed to do one thing. It's to make penciling out, building low and moderate income housing feasible. Because um, I think the market failure here is in the absence of these supports, um, builders are, especially right now, have all the incentives they need to build rich people's houses, but not to build middle and lower income people's houses, to which, by the way, I include uh, manufactured housing and accessory development units. All of those are important. Um, Chris, uh, does this resonate with you from your background? I would say the exclusionary zoning resonates the most. I think that is actually the, the greatest barrier. I talk to a lot of builders. I don't think they're averse to building affordable housing. They can, they could make it work, except in the current environment, right? Given the supply chain issues, they're facing the higher costs. But it's really what they tell me is that it's the zoning that really dissuades them, right? They, it's just not possible to to build in certain areas where there's clearly the demand, but um, the laws don't or the regulations don't permit it. Yeah, I, and I'm I think excited that, most about that that proposal. Yeah, no, that's a great proposal. And um, but uh, so there's two things. There's a proposal to to un undertake um, getting doing doing what we can to get rid of exclusionary zoning, but you know. People always say, oh, the federal government can't do anything about exclusionary zoning. That's, that's a local thing. And, and, you know, I think we've proved that we can come up with innovative policies that could help there. And just once more, let me say there is a policy in the field that is actively doing this in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Jurisdictions gets re rewarded when they um, uh, uh, apply for funds where their, their land use policies promote density, which is uh, a key to boosting supply and often pushes back on exclusionary zoning. So that's a policy that's in the field. You got to think creatively about how we can leverage federal resources to, to crack that nut. 
Oh, you're right. This is a first. It, uh, yeah. It's always yeah, been, oh, it's a local NIMBY issue, right? That's Yeah. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. I, I know the taxpayer is calling. I just want to end with a kind of a open-ended, more open-ended final question. Maybe give us a little bit of guidance as economists. You know, what are the, what, what should we be thinking about that we're not thinking about? I mean, I know that's, you know, a, a little blue sky, but is there some area of thought research that would be helpful to you? Absolutely. As a policymaker? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, first of all, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, your work is tremendously helpful for, to us. And I don't say that because it's always patting us on the back. It's helpful to us when it's patting us on the back and whacking us on the head. Um, <laughs> I think the let, let, I, let me let me tick off a few things that I know I walk around thinking yeah. about. Uh, all of them have to do with uh, with, with risk, uh, with probability of things going going badly. Um, I think that um, digital currencies embed significant risks. Um, there are potential innovations that we shouldn't ignore. Uh, but I think the risks of, uh, of crypto in particular uh, are something that we've tried to think about here. The president had an executive order. Uh, the Treasury put out uh, a report on this that I thought elevated these risks. One thing that uh, appears to be happening in this space is that uh, many uh, disproportionate numbers of uh, people of color have been investing in some of these digital assets. Mm. And I think making sure people understand those risks is super important, both at the individual level, but also at the systemic level. I'm a very big devotee of, um, of the Minsky theory of um, you know, uh, cyclical innovations biting you in the, in, in, in the, in the rear end uh, if you ignore them uh, as cycles uh, evolve. Um, I think that you know, we're, we're in a situation where we have um, uh, the, the, the conflict and you know, the, the, the war in, in Ukraine um, creating uh, risk in terms of commodity prices. Uh, we've just, you know, we're still dealing with a hundred year uh, pandemic. Um, and I think that the, uh, this, this should give us, economists should think about two things in this context. One, what are the best policies to have in place to ensure both individual, community, and macroeconomic well-being in the face of, um, of elevated risks, yeah. tail probabilities that um, you may not, you know, climate's another one, uh, tail probabilities that you know, may look like um, you know, they're not uh, you're gonna fall on your head tomorrow, uh, but uh, are very real, uh, uh, have to be taken very seriously. What policy agenda should we have in place to, pr to provide the insurance against those risks? both for people and for the macro economy. And then secondly, part of that, do not, uh, economists, <laughs> hear my voice, uh, do not assume perfect implementation of everything. Mm. You know, too often we're like, we have an unemployment insurance system, assume it works perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> what we need are our greatest minds thinking about ways to ensure that the implementation of our uh, risk, uh, 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 risk management policies that I'm advocating um, can be effectively implemented. Some of that means fixing your roof when the sun shines, by the way, and not waiting to a recession to um, question the, the software in the UI system. Um, but uh, but uh, please, uh, brothers and sisters in, in our field, don't assume seamless implementation. 
Those are great ones. Uh, and uh, we're th certainly thinking about both the digital currency and, and kind of like risk management and thinking about the, you know, <laughs> what kinds of things should be we, we should be implementing uh, warts and all to try to make sure that if we get into those tail scenarios that, you know, we have some policies that uh, can help out and help us navigate through. But let me let me end it here. And uh, thank you, Jared, for, you know, a wonderful conversation, but more importantly, for the service that you've provided to our country over the years, you know, uh, you know, obviously you, you're uh, very thoughtful and you, I know you've sacrificed a lot to be able to, uh, you know, provide this help to all of us. And so thank you for that. And um, it was good to have you on my friend. Thank you so my much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, I hope I see you soon. Bye-bye. Well, that was a great conversation with Jared. A lot to think about there, uh, but uh, maybe we'll just spend a few minutes and uh, try to uh, recap. Uh, maybe the way to do that is uh, I'll just an open-ended question. What do you think? Uh, was there anything he said that uh, resonated with you, especially, or you would push back on uh, anything uh, that you'd like to point out? Chris, anything, anything come to mind for you? Yeah, he made a lot of great points, and uh, it was great to get his uh, insights into what the administration is thinking. I, I loved his joke. Uh, that joke. Yeah. That was, <laughs> the joke was good. That joke was fabulous. Yeah, that'll go down in the annals of uh, yeah. inside economics uh, yeah. for sure. So I, I'll definitely use that. That was really wonderful. Yeah. So now we're gonna we're gonna debate. Do we want cowbells to ask Carl for funding to get you know, inside economic cowbells or T-shirts that say red shirt or brown pants? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I you would say both. both. You yeah. know, come on, Carl. You know, what's I the know. deal? You know, uh, but uh, but but what do you think, Chris? Any any pushback? Any anything in particular? Uh, one thing that stood out just at the end there was as he was yeah. going through some of the issues. I, I I would certainly agree with him, and I I'll paraphrase here. I'm I'm a big advocate of uh, government infrastructure and actually investing in government infrastructure as as uh, something we need to do for the next credit, right? We, there was unemployment insurance benefits that we uh, were able to get out this time, but that system is quite clunky. We could, we could refine that further. There are lots of things that we should really be investing in, uh, in terms of how we can um, optimize the government uh, strategies so that when we do get into trouble, we have the tools, the data, the systems in place to, to respond. So I would certainly put a plug for for that investment. I don't think it's it's that large. Right? Uh, I think the dividends would pay off uh, substantially next time around. Yeah, very good. And, and Ryan, anything in particular stand out for you? No, just second word, Chris. I, I think the pandemic showed that our UI system is broken. Uh, yeah. But I think the, early on in our conversation, he was talking about uh, a recession and that household balance sheets are in really good shape. I do think yeah. that that doesn't get enough attention. You brought up corporate balance sheets. Well, you're not paying attention. You say 75% probability of recession. What, you know? I'm paying attention to it, but here's the point is that, uh, yeah, usually recessions are caused by some glaring imbalance in the economy, but this is an unusual cycle. This is going to be more boom bust and we didn't get into it, but I mean, financial markets are already talking about a 94% probability of a 75 basis point rate hike in June. I mean, oh, I, this, I missed that. Really? Yeah. It just popped up on... Uh, the terminal. So, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, the, the, the Fed is going to get back to neutral as fast as they can. And I just think that something is, we're going to be vulnerable to something else, anything else that goes wrong. So it doesn't have to be you know, an imbalance with consumers or households. It could just be your garden variety boom bust type cycle. 
are we putting too much emphasis on probability of recession and not enough on severity? On severity, severity. I think that's. I don't a great think point. I, what I'm hearing universally, nobody thinks that the next recession actually would be quite severe because of all the economic mm-hmm. fundamentals and the strengths. So, I got that question this week from a reporter asking me about what's the probability of recession, then what would it be as severe as the pandemic, or would it be closer to the Great Recession or 2001? So, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it will be a mild recession. Well, the thing is, economists are loath to call recession. They're even loather to call a severe recession. I mean, I can even you know go back to the financial crisis when it first happened. Mm-hmm. It started in January of 2008, and it looked like that was going to be, oh, this is going to be a mild recession. <laughs> and, and what happens no. is it starts feeding on itself, right, and exposing any th- things that you don't even know are a problem, you know, or at least certainly not to the degree that they are. Uh, but I, yeah, so I, so my point is, we should be rooting out those things. What are the fissures? What are yeah. the cracks in the foundation here? Yeah, and so yeah. far, right? At least as, we, as we've discussed, there really aren't glaring ones. It's, yeah, it's hard right? to find them. Right? You can find yeah, pockets me, in households, yeah. right? So certainly, lower income households or zombie corporations are out, you know, mm-hmm. out there that have been uh, surviving because of the low interest rate environment. So clearly, there's going to be some pain in a, in the next recession, but. Well, that, you know, that's a problem. Like, go back again to the financial crisis. Do you remember we the, the uh, then Fed Chair Ben Bernanke giving a speech on subprime mortgage, mm-hmm. right? So we had all said, okay, if there is a kind of a soft spot in the system that might get exposed and create a bigger problem, it would be all this mortgage lending because obviously the housing market was you know gangbusters and prices were rising and a lot of building and everything else. Yeah, be contained, right? And he'd come out, he came out with a, this speech saying subprime mortgage, no big deal. That, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing right. obviously, but that was clearly the message. So, you know, again, back to my point, you know, we're pretty reluctant to call out, you know, but I, I will, I will say this just does not feel, the fundamentals of this economy feel pretty good to me. I mean, it, very different than the fundamentals that prevail prior to the financial crisis. So I agree with you on severity. You you would think it would be relatively mild, but but don't you think we do a pretty good job? I mean, we we keep track of the probability of recession, but we have that risk matrix, the global and U.S. risk matrix, and they kind of quantify because the it's the catalyst that determines the severity and the length of the recession, and we kind of identify what potential catalysts are. I mean, we could be wrong; we could miss a couple, but yeah, I think we have a pretty that's a good tool. The we yeah, identify really like all these potential risks. Uh, what's the probability of that risk? And then also what's the severity, the economic loss, the present value of the economic loss if that risk actually were to occur. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, you know, you have one, I have one. I don't know if Chris has one. (laughs) They're similar, but they're not the same, which is actually quite interesting, you know, very interesting. We'll have to get together. Yeah. You know where I would push back? And I remember I said, you know, Jared is one of these guys that uh, there's uh, other than Alan Blinder. He's the only guy I mostly agree with on everything. And by the way, the one thing that he he was alluding to, he and Blinder not agreeing on trade. That's the one area I agree with Blinder on trade. You know, I disagree with Jared. At least I don't know where he stands now. But, you know, historically, he's been much more skeptical of trade. And in the context of China, maybe that makes more sense. But, you know, I was before China, you know, thought, you know, and even with China, I thought Trans-Pacific Partnership was a better way to go than trade war and higher tariffs. But anyway, uh, I say that uh, with this comment, and that is I would push back on his his explication for why inflation is so high. You know, of course, it's demand and supply. He seemed to be suggesting it, you know, demand is almost or 
not in the same it's in the same ballpark as supply as driving a higher inflation i i just don't see it that way i i think what we're observing yeah the pickup of inflation a year ago when the economy reopened and we had the american rescue plan yeah that was demand driven inflation mostly but what we're observing now that is almost entirely supply side i don't see that as demand in fact consumer demand has been you know pretty pedestrian you know over the last almost Certainly, in terms of goods, it's been flat for a year, and for overall consumer spending, it's been pretty pedestrian. It, you know, here, here's a statistic for you. I just calculated this: the growth in consumer spending since the pandemic hit over the past two years through March is average annual real consumer spending is two point three percent. Excuse me, two yeah, two point three percent. You know what it was in the two years prior to the pandemic through March of 2020? Two point four percent. No different. So consumer spending is not is demand is just demand. It's it's really the supply side of this economy that's been all messed up. But but it's interesting that you know he he seems to be saying ah oh, demand's more of an issue here than you know, than supply is an issue, but demand is more of an issue than I would would say. So if I had to push back on him, that's where I would push back in in terms of his uh, you know his assessment of of where the economy is. Anyway, a uh, lot to think about there. A really good conversation. Uh, uh, I'm going to ad- advertise my Twitter handle again. At Mark Zandi, uh, just saying, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, you haven't uh, been very active recently. I have been active, yeah. No, you haven't. Or maybe I, I just don't know how to use a Twitter account. Because when I was on vacation, I was like, oh, let's see what Mark's saying. Really? Mark gets, I thought Mark I'd, gets. geez. Uh, you know, I don't want to go down the Twitter rabbit hole. Like, uh, you know, that'd be, you could, it's easy to go down that that rabbit hole but no oh, yeah you got to see i thought it was pretty active jeez I, hmm. that's yeah. or maybe it was just a few days i was checking yeah and you what's your twitter handle at real time underscore econ there you go and, and chris is not really active on twitter he's a big as we pointed out in the past linkedin maven so anyway. i mean linkedin yeah yeah okay well i think um we're going to call it a podcast uh, we didn't get to listeners questions we got to do that you know got to remind me to get back to listeners questions because we, we're they're piling up i have a bunch of good ones but we'll do that next week because we're running out of time so with that thank you for your attention and um that we'll call it a podcast see you next week 